You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Sleep apnea, when untreated, can lead to a variety of medical problems, but how do we motivate our patients to pursue and treat this disorder? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joseph Golish, professor of medicine and head of sleep medicine in the Department of Pulmonology at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Golish. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. You know, I talk to my patients when I have a suspicion of sleep apnea and try to get them into the sleep lab. Uh, very often, they're very resistant. What are the risks that they're running by not pursuing this and any suggestions for motivation? That's important. With sleep apnea, I think perhaps we are where we were with hypertension and hypercholesterolemia perhaps two or three decades ago, that people were not aware of the risks. And it took a long time for first the medical community to be educated and then to pass that information on to patients. So now it's widely accepted that those are risk factors for heart attacks and strokes. And patients have become much more compliant with the treatment. With sleep apnea, it hasn't been until the last few years that the risks have really been delineated. Some patients or many patients in their families or spouses have become aware of it, but others are still unaware of it. And it's more of a nuisance than anything else. Namely, they snore. It might disrupt their spouse's sleep and mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. the spouse go into another bedroom. But other than that, they're not really too concerned. Sleep apnea can cause car accidents and affect both the patient and the innocent bystander due to falling asleep at the wheel. In addition to that, high blood pressure is commonly associated. A person with apnea has at least double the risk of high blood pressure, and often that blood pressure tends to be hard to control, uh, sometimes uncontrolled with two medications because of the effect of the apnea. Also, heart attacks, strokes, uh, congestive heart failure, diabetes, the metabolic syndrome, these have all been associated with sleep apnea. And the diabetes metabolic syndrome is independent of the obesity that some of these patients have? It is indeed. It's insulin resistance. And there are about half a dozen different mechanisms that are thought to contribute to these morbidities. Some of it, it's not hypoxemia necessarily. It's the autonomic dysfunction that goes along with these repetitive episodes of upper airway obstruction where there's a vagal discharge followed by a sympathetic discharge where uh, pulses slow way down and then they speed way up and that puts a lot of stress on the cardiovascular system. There's also inflammation that occurs with apnea. Insulin resistance occurs, endothelial activation. So there are a number of mechanisms whereby apnea produces these morbidities. Uh, The direct cause and effect of which is operative in each disease is not entirely clear, but it's probably in the aggregate that the dysfunction of those parts of our physiology uh, lead to those risks. So I could certainly tell my patient, you know, if you want to control your cholesterol so that you don't have a stroke or a heart attack, this is of a similar nature. We need to control this as well. Exactly. Are there documented reductions in these elevated risks when sleep apnea is treated? Yes, with blood pressure or hypertension for sure. With hypersomnia and car accidents, definitely information on that. Heart failure becomes much easier to control, whether obstructive or central apnea is associated with it. And also, insulin resistance improves as well. Now, as far as heart attacks and strokes, I don't believe there are long-term studies yet that have shown that by controlling apnea with CPAP that the risk of of heart attacks and strokes is diminished, but there's some suggestive data that indeed 
they are reduced. And how about weight? You know, so many of my patients at least would be motivated by the idea of weight loss. Is there any data that if you treat the obstructive sleep apnea, weight loss follows? In my experience, definitely. And although there's mixed information in the literature about that, it does appear that when you put a, the overweight patient on CPAP, that they become motivated to diet, to exercise. Uh, putting that mask on each night is something that they, you know, we often dangle the carrot and point out that if they lose a good bit of weight, there's a strong chance that they may be able to do without CPAP and treat their apnea in another way, plus the obvious benefits of weight loss alone. In addition to that, uh, they're more alert and more vigilant. They seem to have increased self-discipline. And in fact, their metabolic rates do increase when apnea is treated so that it does appear that in many patients, weight control goes along with the institution of treatment for apnea for a variety of reasons. So it's a risk factor like hypertension or hyperlipidemia, so we need to treat it to prevent the consequences, and there's data that suggests treating it does indeed mitigate those possible adverse outcomes. And CPAP is the gold standard. I must say I I may tell patients not to use CPAP almost as often as I tell them to use it. It's not a an easy breakpoint, as it is, say, with hypertension. If a blood pressure is above 140 over 90, they ought to be treated, whether it's with medication or some non-medical treatment. You know, we're all pretty much agreed on that. With apnea, it's quite a spectrum, and that there are patients whose apnea is mild, and it doesn't require CPAP therapy. And generally, it's the patients who have these apnea hypopnea indices, the AHI, 5 to 15 episodes per hour that don't require CPAP. Uh, the patients moderate to severe, moderate being 15 to 30 episodes an hour and more than 30 an hour being severe, in general, CPAP would be the first choice of, of treatment. Now, having said that, implementing CPAP, if a person's overweight, then one can undertake both approaches with the hope that the weight loss will allow them to get rid of the CPAP and that the CPAP will allow them to lose their weight. Now, in addition to that, there are some patients who have obvious anatomic abnormalities, especially in children. They often have giant tonsils that kiss in the middle uh, of their oropharynx and that their upper airway is partially blocked even when they're awake. And for those sorts of patients who have some of the other anatomic abnormalities we mentioned above, like retronathia, that surgery may actually be definitive. Having said that, the most commonly patients who have sleep apnea do not have a fixed upper airway obstruction that could be surgically addressed. And it's more of a dynamic collapse that occurs just during sleep, and it's aggravated by nasal obstruction. To that point, I think I've seen studies that show five years after a surgery, many of those apnea patients are on CPAP anyway. Yeah, that's true. That you know, we've gone through different eras, and for some years, the uvulopalatopharyngoplasty, that soft tissue surgery in the back of the throat, had become the standard in, uh, until CPAP really had supplanted it. And part of it is because, you know, half of the patients who underwent the procedure weren't made safe as far as their apnea-apopnea indices, and even those that were, many of them had late recurrences due to reconfirmation of their uh, oropharynx. So that surgery is definitely a second-line approach, generally for the person who's totally intolerant to the CPAP. Having said that, new masks, new equipment, better support from uh, durable medical uh, equipment companies, DME, and also sleep educators can really improve compliance so that it's the really unusual patient who can't use the device. 
Compliance is key. You know, our, our compliance rates are going up, but it's a whole lot different than treating someone for high blood pressure or cholesterol. There's this dynamic interaction with the device, and it's a need for the patient to not just swallow a pill, but to use the thing through most every night of the week and for the entire night. And that's difficult for many people. Actually, we're working on a device that could provide patient feedback so that the morning after the patient will get information from their machine to tell them whether they've met their goal. Hmm. And I think this sort of device, and also the potential to send that same information telephonically perhaps to their caregiver mm-hmm. so that there's some outside pressure. But it is important that one of, uh, just as a, as you follow a patient with hypertension and cholesterol, to follow them up uh, on a regular basis on CPAP. And, and there are means to download information from the CPAP machine that, that home care companies can provide to the physician so that you can get some objective information about compliance. Uh, I think that's underutilized. It's often not made readily available to the docs, and uh, but I think that's another way of improving CPAP. For the practicing physician, is this pretty standard that every DME company is going to provide education and support, and or are there ways that we can identify which companies we want for our patients? That's a very good point. That I think it's worth identifying a home care company in your area that really does provide a respiratory therapist who educates patients. And years ago, the home care company's truck might slow down and push the CPAP device off the back end in front of the person's house and they were on, <laughs> their, on own. their own. Right. And actually, as things became more and more competitive, uh, home care companies got much more involved in it. But once again, reimbursement has been cranked down. And so there's a risk that high-quality education isn't provided. So sometimes we provide that information right in the doctor's office with a respiratory therapist or a sleep tech who can interact with the patient, make sure they have the right device and they they know how to use it and so on. So it is important for us to make sure our patients are getting that either from the DME company or from a qualified sleep center. Right. I sit on the steering committee for the American College of Chest Physicians Sleep Committee, and and one of the areas uh, that is being actively pursued is the continuity of care in the apnea patient and perhaps the development of a role called the sleep educator uh, to try to help patients understand their disease, the risk of their disease, and the use of their treatment and compliance with their treatment. So also there's an effort of educating the family doctors so that they become comfortable writing prescriptions for CPAP and, and as you said, trying to find a right DME company that that really does go that extra mile uh, to improve compliance. And is the compliance data from the CPAP units adequate, or should we be periodically retesting our treated patients? No need to follow up patients with sequential sleep studies unless, you know, if the patient is using their CPAP and they still remain sleepy, then you have to entertain that there may have been some other diagnosis. And and it's not uncommon for patients to have apnea in a sleep study and that CPAP fixes the apnea, but they come back in and they're still sleepy. And that brings up a really important issue and one of the issues related to home testing and clinical evaluation. With all of this excitement and interest and worry about obstructive sleep apnea, that we sometimes forget the larger view and that there are lots of other causes for sleepiness and that very often a patient may be sleepy and have apnea. True, true, but not related, not one due to the other. And so that in the person who's not responding, then it takes a careful relook at the, whether there's some associated disease. And that's one of the problems with home studies. And, and I think that's what we'll see when home testing becomes 
reimbursed is that there'll be some restriction in patients where we think there may be some other disorder, uh, maybe central sleep apnea or this new entity called complex sleep apnea where CPAP seems to change the pattern of the person's apnea from obstructive to central or some other obesity hypoventilation, the Pickwickian syndrome, uh, patients who have underlying lung disease who hypoventilate at night, you know, and narcolepsy and circadian rhythm disorders, that there are a whole raft of other illnesses that can mimic apnea. And the person who comes in who snores and is sleepy, that the CPAP may not be the end point. So I think it's important to keep an open mind in that regard. Well, I want to thank Dr. Joseph Golish, who has been our guest as we've been discussing the management of obstructive sleep apnea. I thank you very much. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.